Another episode of Pop Law Podcast. I'm your host Tyrone, and I'm Desiree, and we are, are not, not your attorneys. attorneys. So today we have another special guest episode. We are kind of like back to back with guest episodes. We're on fire. We it's, know y'all love us. We but. was inspired by Hot Girl Summer to get our <laughs> shit together, and so we got these guests coming up for you back to back to back. Yeah. So who do we have today, Miss Desiree? Michael Lambert is a journalist turned lawyer devoted to defending and strengthening First Amendment speech and press rights. He is a media and First Amendment attorney at the Boston law firm Prince Lobelti, where he represents local and national media clients. Before joining Prince Lobelti, he provided legal counsel to journalists at NBC News in New York City and at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press in Washington, D.C., Michael is also a published author. He wrote a chapter about the emerging area of social media law for the book, Internet Law, The Complete Guide. Pertinent to today's discussion, he wrote about the Espionage Act, WikiLeaks, and Julian Assange for an international legal publication while interning at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. He is a proud native of New Orleans, Louisiana. Welcome, Welcome Michael. Michael. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, guys. We're so happy to have you here to bless us with your expertise because this topic is sort of complicated for like the everyday person to understand in large part because not a lot of people even get what the First Amendment means or applies to. (laughs) (laughs) If you hung out on the internet, you see a lot of people talking about your, my First Amendment rights. It doesn't work like that. Exactly. You can't (laughs) say what you want to say when you want to say how you want to say it. (laughs) So we're glad that you have us here to help us through this um, Julian Assange case and why it's, it's, because it's been going on for years once we get into the history, but you know, why is it pertinent right now? And what are the things that recently happened that sort of have people in upheaval, especially journalists, about, you know, why the First Amendment and journalism may be under threat. So let's get a little bit into the facts. Julian Assange, he's the pale skin, 6'2", 48-year-old. He was born in Townsville, Australia. And in his youth, he was constantly moving throughout Australia. So, you know, he doesn't really have like a home per se. And he began hacking computers when he was just 16 years old. And by the mid-90s, he had been charged and pleaded guilty to hacking Canadian telecommunications company Nortel's main terminal located in Melbourne. So he was doing like the real big boy illegal stuff right at the beginning of his teenage years. I just don't know why people won't hack the Department of Education and clear everyone's right. student loan. Right. <laughs> Listen, just wipe it all out, Jesus. <laughs> so after he decided, you know, hacking wasn't enough, he went on ahead and tried to get an education. <laughs> so Julian studied programming, mathematics, and physics at Central Queensland University in 1994 and the University of Melbourne in 2003 through 2006. But unfortunately, he did not complete any of those degrees. And so (laughs) that sort of led him to 
you know, become an entrepreneur, if you will. And he started WikiLeaks. And so after starting and failing to complete these several degrees, Julian decided to start WikiLeaks in 2006. And it was founded for the communal publication, a la the term Wiki, of confidential or withheld government documents of interest. And WikiLeaks made its first leak available in December 2006. And it was a decision to assassinate Somali government officials signed by Somali political figure and U.S. designated terrorist, Sheikh Hassan Dahir Awais. Hmm. And yeah, right? That's That was a big first leak, right. assassination documents. And then there was another event in 2008 that we won't get into, but that in that event, he also sort of got international prominence because other people were like, hey, he should be able to like publish um, these leaks because they're of public interest. So, you know, that leads us to the issues of today, if you will. So let's um, talk about some of the events that happened or the leaks that WikiLeaks had going on. In 2010, Chelsea Manning leaks was really big. Uh, February 18, 2010, WikiLeaks published... Rakajevich 13. A cable that contained communications from the American Deputy Chief of Mission, Sam Watson, about detailed private discussions he held with Iceland's leaders over a referendum on whether to repay losses from a bank failure, including a frank assessment that Iceland could default in 2011. On April 5, 2010, WikiLeaks published Collateral Murder, video of the July 12, 2007 Baghdad airstrikes that killed civilians. July 25, 2010, Afghan War Logs, publication by WikiLeaks, The New York Times, The Guardian, and Der Spiegel. October 22, 2010, publication of the Iraq War Logs, at the time the biggest leak in the military history of the United States. November 28, 2010, Cablegate publication of over 250,000 diplomatic cables from the U.S. State Department. It was the largest set of confidential documents ever to be released into the public domain, worked with media partners to redact names. On April 24, 2011, Guantanamo Bay Files published via WikiLeaks and other media partners. And September 1, 2011, WikiLeaks released remaining cables from Cablegate with no names redacted. So just to recap, all of those leaks that Desiree just described stemmed from one person, Chelsea Manning, who had a lot going on in her life. Um, she was transitioning at the time. And she was just really depressed. And so she found solace in the arms of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. So if that wasn't enough, during that time period, well, this all starts to overlap about other things that are happening. Because Julian Assange, he's the face of WikiLeaks, but he isn't necessarily like the leader of it. But he is the one who's like, you know, pushing for very salacious things to be published. So... Going back to the beginning of 2010, or it's mid-2010 at least, there were sexual assault allegations in Sweden filed against him. So Julian allegedly tricked one woman into having unprotected sex and allegedly raped another woman while she was sleeping. And then after that, he was arrested in 2010. He was arrested several times and released several times in London until he was released on bail and put on house arrest while decisions about his extradition to Sweden were being made. 
And then that played out over a really long time. And then in 2012, while he was waiting for his extradition appeals decision from the British Supreme Court, Julian decided to get all sneaky (laughs) and violate his bell. And he entered the Ecuadorian embassy in London to seek asylum, knowing that that was in violation of the conditions of his bail release. And we're saying like the embassy was literally in the middle of London. So it wasn't like he got on a plane and go to Ecuador. So they were pissed at him, um, the UK at least. And then while he was in the embassy, a little thing called the 2016 presidential election happened. And he was still in the embassy. And during that time, he helped facilitate and the leakage of thousands of emails that were stolen from the Democratic National Convention's servers, and they were largely believed to have been done in coordination with Russian government-backed operatives. So there was a lot going on over the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. And now it's sort of, you have a bit of a foundation to understand the most recent events and how they are relevant. So we have the Chelsea Manning leaks from 2010. We have the rape allegations from 2010. We have the arrest and release on bail conditions in 2010 through 2012. When 2012 is when he entered the embassy in London for Ecuador and violated his bail. And then in 2016 is when he really pissed off the United States. And that's releasing President Hopeful Clinton's yes, uh, that emails was, as well. Yes, that was um, the what about her emails. And it wasn't just hers. It was yeah, um, John we, Podesta. Yeah. It was all these people in the Democratic Party. But this is the world in which Julian Assange is now living in. So, Michael, can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening since 2016 presidential election email leak? Sure. I think one other thing to keep in mind is throughout this whole time through, um, you know, the 2010 years, he, Julian Assange, had these potential charges hanging over his head. Right. I mean, they weren't exactly fought, they weren't filed at that point, but they, at any day now, any day those, those um, charges could be released. And it had been reported that the Obama administration did consider charging him, but ultimately decided against bringing that indictment against Julian Assange because they worried about the First Amendment implications and what it would mean for press freedoms um, down the road. Right. So ultimately, um, the Obama administration did not did not uh, charge Julian Assange. Yes. But but things did change and, and, <laughs> in a big way um, under the Trump administration, under Attorney General Jeff Sessions, they started recontemplating whether um, Julian Assange should be charged under the Espionage Act, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more. But why they started considering it then at that point it was because it's a 10-year statute of limitations Mm, on espionage act charges so in order to charge julian assange from the leaks from 2010 they needed to be brought by 2020. right Right. okay so this is part of the reason why the next things that i started mentioning will make more sense on why these charges did come because what ended up happening in, in november of 2018 Uh, A clerical error revealed that the U.S. Justice Department was planning to bring charges against Assange. A court filing was unsealed and an unrelated case did not have anything to do with Assange or WikiLeaks or the Espionage Mm -hmm. Act. But um, a filing was unsealed in this in this other case, and it contained two references to an indictment against Assange. And this was reported um, It's reportedly just, just due to a simple copy and paste error by federal prosecutors. Um, and media crazy. picked this up from the public records. 
and reported that, hey, it looks like the Justice Department is planned on bringing charges against Assange. They had this in a document in another case. So that sort of gave everybody a heads up that potential charges could be coming down the line. Now, Michael, and this was, this was November 2018. Michael, had you ever heard of that before where it was such an egregious case of like administrative error that it actually affected another case like that? Have you ever heard of that? I haven't heard it happen in this important of a case, yeah. but I have heard it in situations in which the government hands over documents pursuant to a Freedom of Information Act mm -hmm. request, for example, and they think they are redacting certain parts of it. Right. And when it's submitted to the court and the other side um, in the litigation receives a copy of it, there's a way that the unre that the redacted portions are actually seen. Right. Okay. So like there's cases like that in which it's like technology can cause issues and sometimes what the government or any party maybe some think they're submitting under seal or under redaction mm -hmm. when it's actually submitted to the court it comes out and it's unredacted and at that point it's a public record right. I and mean, that's the presumption that um that court records have under the first amendment so that's what happened in this case it was it was already out there so under the, the public record you you know people were able to access it and see that hey there was at least something in the works from the Justice Department about charging Assange. So uh -huh. I wonder if this was an accidental on purpose leak, you know, <laughs> to kind of put everyone on notice. Hey, you never know. Exactly. Yeah, you really don't. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, because it's interesting because that was in November 2018. Uh -huh. And then the official indictment didn't come until about six months later yeah. um, on April 11th of 2019. Very, very long time. So what happened on April 11th? Yeah, so on April 11th, um, Assange was officially indicted for conspiracy to commit unlawful computer intrusion under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, essentially, prosecutors alleged that in 2010, um, like we were talking about earlier, Assange helped Chelsea Manning crack an encoded password and access classified military information. And this information included this, the State Department cables from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars mm. that were later published on WikiLeaks. So all those cable gate things. Exactly. Cable gate. Yep. Okay. So for people who don't know exactly who Chelsea Manning is, uh, was Chelsea Manning a hacker as well? Or what actual role and access did Chelsea have to these documents? So Chelsea was just a soldier who was in the military and uh, okay. she had some rank. She wasn't super high up, but what she did have was access to documents yeah, and okay. a lot of documents. And she was very unhappy with her life at the time. And I think she also was, you know, unhappy with some of the decisions that were being made by yeah. the administration in mm -hmm. terms of, um, you know, things related to war and the conflicts. Yeah. And. The only way in which she felt, I believe, she had any power to do something was to basically steal these documents and share them. Because um, if you do any research on her, you, you sort of find out that it wasn't just WikiLeaks she was trying to give these documents to. She was reaching out to various media outlets as well. And they sort of were just like, eh, we don't want to touch that. That's so this is what happens when a woman is fed up. Okay, so Michael, <laughs> take us back into what happened next um, in regards to this case. So um, one thing to note is that at this point, um, a lot of people have been paying attention to this case mm -hmm. and was wondering if Assange would be charged. And at this point, there was just this one count um, for conspiracy under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. 
So some journalists and, you know, media advocates out there kind of breathe a sigh of relief saying, oh, this this is, you know, this is OK because most journalists don't go in and, and conspire to hack computers and right. and access classified information. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it, it just put a note in that, that at that point there was the potential for more charges, but some people believe that, that maybe that was it. Okay. But on the, and on the same day that um, Julian Assange did receive that indictment for the one count under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, the Ecuadorian government revoked his Ecuadorian citizenship and also rescinded the, his asylum and allowed the Metropolitan Police to remove Assange at the request of the U.S. government. And then he was arrested. Assange was arrested on an extradition warrant from the U.S. Justice Department relating to this conspiracy to hack charge. And then on May 23rd, 2019, this is when the Justice Department followed up with what's called a superseding indictment. So Julian Assange was charged with 17 additional counts in addition to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act charge. And these 17 counts are under the Espionage Act. And then this is when it really started getting a lot of attention because people were concerned that, as we'll talk about later, that some of these counts that he was charged under for the under the Espionage Act are, are things that that regular investigative journalists do on a daily basis. Okay. And essentially what the superseding indictment charges Assange with is, I, I boil it down to four different things. So Assange was charged with encouraging sources, including Chelsea Manning, to access classified information. Number two, he was charged with helping Manning hack the military computer. And then number three, he was actually charged with the obtainment of the classified information under the Espionage Act. And fourth, and perhaps most troubling, is that he was charged specifically with publishing the classified information through WikiLeaks. So that's kind of the summary of what um, is encapsulated through the 17 counts under the Espionage Act. And so I I only have a passing um, acquaintance with the Espionage Act. Sure. So how many people been, you know, successfully charged with violating the Espionage Act? So let's back up a second about the Espionage Act. It was enacted in 1917 under President Woodrow Wilson after World War One. And essentially it's it's a treason statute, right? It's supposed Mm -hmm. to prohibit interference with U.S. military operation and prevent support of U.S. enemies during wartime. Okay. And it was rarely used to begin with. Like I said, this came, this was enacted in 1917. So it is a relatively outdated statute and it's very broad. The language of it is very broad. And at the same time, it's broad. It's also very vague. And it was rarely used traditionally to begin with, but it has been used more and contemplated to be used more within the past 10 years, especially. Oh, okay. So later in May of 2019, Assange was sentenced to 50 weeks in a UK prison for violating the terms of his bail prior to seeking refuge in Ecuador's embassy. And up next for Assange essentially is a hearing scheduled for February 25th of 2020 to determine whether the UK will extradite him to the US on those charges in the superseding indictment. Something that I find pretty interesting that I read is if he's um, on trial here, the trial will take place in Virginia Mm. and Virginia still has the death Death penalty. penalty. And so apparently Trump made comments that uh, Julian should be executed in Virginia under the death penalty. 
But I think that's all hilarious because he talked about and used the, you know, Clinton exposure emails that run on his campaign. So you like that he put that information out there because that's how you talked about Hillary the whole time. Right. Also, just a quick summary of some of the stuff that you talked through, Michael, is that, you know, you said the clerical error happened in November 2018 which gave everyone a heads up that he was about to be charged. And then he actually had the charges in um, April, early of this year. And it was the one charge, the conspiracy. And then not even a month later is when they had all of the other charges for um, the Espionage Act violations. But I want to, there was something you briefly talked about is how the Ecuadorian embassy kicked him out. Um, and they revoked his citizenship and his asylum status <laughs> in large part because he was a terrible house guest. He was literally skateboarding through the embassy. He was throwing his feces on the wall in protest because they cut off his internet access because he was hacking from inside the embassy. <laughs> and they were like, you can't, like, we will get in trouble if you hack from our Wi-Fi. Like, <laughs> they will literally kick us out of here. And he just kept doing all of this stuff. So he basically forced their hand when he didn't want to play by their rules. And he was like, I can't, he tried to file a lawsuit against them to say they were violating his human rights as a Ecuadorian He's citizen. He's just a rebel at soul. <laughs> you can't follow the rules and people are trying to keep you safe. Yeah. Like, and come on, um, sir. Yeah. So basically he got Ecuador pissed off at him. He got the U.S. pissed off at him. And then he had the U.K. pissed off at him because he violated the bell and he saw asylum status on U.K. soil at an Ecuador embassy. So he had no friends in the state level at that point when every everyone was like, here, take him, go rest him. So a lot happened, honestly, in the past six months that you know gets us to what Michael was talking about with all the charges and he's currently in jail. So Michael, can you speak to a little about why people, and not just people, journalists are really on high alert right now because of everything that's going on in a little jail probably over in England right now and what that means for if he actually gets extradited and goes on trial for these things that he's done for, you know, the hacking with Chelsea or potentially um, aiding and abetting or conspiring with her to hack. So what does that all mean? Why is it such a big deal? Yeah, I think one of the things that I want to drill down more on that I mentioned earlier is the fact that under the superseding indictment, he, uh, Julian Assange, is, is specifically charged with actually publishing um, this information, mm-hmm. the the, um, the classified documents. And, you know, specifically, he's he's also charged with, you know, conspiring with Chelsea Manning and others and uh, soliciting these documents, these classified documents from a source, Chelsea Manning, mm-hmm. and then publishing them. That's what journalists do. Right. That's journalism. I mean, any investigative reporter that works for that works on the national security beat, especially they're talking to their sources. They're they're looking for information, whether it's classified or not. It's not not their problem. Mm -hmm. um, Traditionally, at least. And they're looking to publish them. And yes, you know, most news outlets would vet a lot of these documents much more than WikiLeaks and Julian Assange does. Um, they typically just dump it all out and they say, we don't really care what's in it. We're not going to vet it ourselves. Right. We're not going to yeah. look through it or actually we're just going to release it in mass. And yes, yeah, true that, you know, some of these same documents that were that have been published through WikiLeaks have been published through the New York Times mm-hmm. and other newspapers 
but they did vet them and they did redact, um, names, redact yeah. sensitive information. Right. Okay. So in, in that way, yeah, you can you can draw a line between what Julian Assange and WikiLeaks does or did and does still do. Mm-hmm. But at its core, if you read the superseding indictment, you can scratch off the name Assange and put uh, any other journalist right. in name, yeah. and a lot of it would would still ring true. As far as again the the soliciting documents from from sources, even if their documents are classified, and then publishing them. Again, I mean, your average journalist isn't going to go and break a computer, break into a computer and hack it, or or help somebody hack it. <laughs> but that's just some of the charges that Julian Assange faced. He faces direct charges just for the act of publishing, publishing mm. these classified documents. And so, has anyone else been subject to any of these types of charges in the recent past, or is this? a uniquely Julian Assange issue in terms of the publishing portion of it. Cause you know, the, I think, you know, people understand like if he was providing the tools or encouraging Chelsea to hack the government, that that definitely would fall under, you know, punishable crimes. If you're like, Hey, go hack them. And here's how you do it. And here are the tools that you need to hack them. But, you know, for the publishing portion of it, is there any other recent example of a successful, you know, prosecution of that yeah so here's a kind of a timeline on that so the government has slowly expanded using the espionage act over the past 10 years this really started during the obama administration uh, but the reporters committee for freedom of the press where i used to work just released a great chart on this mm-hmm. and they found that before 2009 there were only four espionage cases against media sources or leakers Wow. And again, the Espionage Act was enacted in 1917. Yeah, it's old. So yeah, before 2009, there were only four Espionage Act cases against media sources or leakers. But since 2009, there have been 18. Wow. And most of the previous prosecutions were against the leakers, right? Most of the leakers are government employees because they have access to the to the records, like yeah. Chelsea Manning or um, Edward Snowden. Those are government employees. Right. But during the Obama and now the Trump administration, we have seen more of an appetite to prosecute non-governmental employees and third parties associated with the leaks. And this brings us to the Assange indictment, which is really the first time that someone has been prosecuted specifically for publishing classified documents. And that's counts 15 through 17 in the superseding indictment. So how do you think this will change the media and journalism industry as a whole? Yeah, well, even if the Assange prosecution is not successful for whatever reason that that may be, this indictment alone has the potential to cause what we in the media industry call chilling effects, Mm. especially on national security journalism. Chilling effects essentially is when the government threatens to punish those who report on a certain topic like national security here, Mm -hmm. that those national security sources are less likely to share news with journalists and journalists are less likely to report on national security issues for fear of having to defend themselves in a lawsuit or going to jail. So in turn, reporting is chilled or essentially censored on that particular topic. And that's something that is very worrisome in, in this times where, you know, the, the government is obviously looking to prosecute people for releasing classified information. And I think something I, I would want to point out to our listeners is that, yes, this information is classified mm-hmm. for a reason. And there are often good reasons for there, there to be classified information. 
But throughout um, our history in the United States, we've had many examples in which the press or journalists generally releasing and publishing classified information has led to real real positive change for the country. Mm -hmm. um, as far back as the Pentagon Papers, which was regarding the happenings of the Vietnam yeah. War that American Amer many Americans didn't know about. Same with Watergate. Uh, the Washington Post exposed a lot of information that the government was trying to hide from the people there, and those were all classified. And then more recently, it, we were talking about you know the mass surveillance by the NSA, some wiretapping under the Bush administration, and then there's been extensive reporting on uh, torture at military prisons, including Guantanamo Bay, that have come out through the leak and the subsequent publication of classified information. Yeah, and that was through and Chelsea this, Manning for the Guantanamo Bay stuff. And then, right, exactly. Um, the, and this also ignores a whole other problem, which is we don't have time for that now, but <laughs> that the, the government overclassifies documents. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just they they just will put that seal on it, top secret or classified and and yeah, with no the hopes I, that they won't come out. That's exactly what um Tommy Vitor from Pod Save America. He used to be on um, Obama's National Security Council. Now he's Mr. Pod Save America um, and yeah. Pod Save the World. But he, that's one of the points he makes actually quite often on his show is how documents were overclassified all the time. Oh, yeah. And he was like, why is this classified? And he's like, this is why people are like suspicious of us because we're literally classifying like lunch orders. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think going back to more of the First Amendment and what the free press in this country is supposed to be about is the First Amendment was designed because we were trying to get rid of what the British were doing to us as 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 patriots. And at that point, the British were controlling the printing presses and they were basically in charge of what information got out. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why the First Amendment and the actual freedom of speech and freedom of press was in the First Amendment, because we wanted to give the right to for everybody to control that information and for the government not to tell the people what they want to hear that yeah. essentially the media is a watchdog for the on the government especially right. and then it's supposed to provide a check on the government and that's how courts have really interpreted the first amendment in a lot of these cases which is why you know we can get into this if we want but that i think you know julian assange's defense is going to be under the first amendment mm. what's the short version of what that um, defense, <laughs> defense could be, could be. <laughs> so the United States Supreme Court in a string of cases starting in the 1970s essentially has ruled that the First Amendment protects the publication of truthful information about a matter of public concern, absent a need to further a state interest of the highest order. That's what the courts have defined. Mm -hmm. And then in 2001, there's a very important case called Bartnicki versus Bopper, and the Supreme Court extended that principle, holding that the publication of truthful information about a matter of public concern even if it's obtained through the illegal activity of a third party, mm -hmm. is constitutionally protected. But in that case, in the Barnicki case, the Supreme Court was very careful to say that the publisher did not participate in the underlying illegal conduct. Right. So that's different than the situation here in which Assange is accused of participating in the underlying illegal conduct the hacking of the computers and the obtaining of this information. Right. So essentially, this is this is pretty much an open question. This not has not been decided by the Supreme Court exactly how this goes down. There's some analogies that can be made to this Barnicki case. There's also analogies that can be made to the New York Times versus United States Pentagon Papers case. 
One other thing I, I think I should I would note is that I think one of Assange's best defenses is that news gathering is protected under the First Amendment. Right. And that's what I think would be his strongest argument. And so we mentioned some of the publications that WikiLeaks did. Can we talk about why the release of uh, maybe the Guantanamo Bay files may be newsworthy for the public to know? Why should the public care about that? Yeah, I think there's there's a strong emphasis on the government when the government is is doing things on behalf of the people using taxpayers' money. The 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 public has a right to know what those what those things are within certain limits, and especially when you're dealing with prisoners in Guantanamo Bay that affect that affect you know national security and people within certain limits. I think that is information that the people need to know and they need to know how the government is treating war criminals, for example. Right. Um, yeah. If they don't know how they're treating them, the governments can treat them as crappily as they want and there will be no oversight. So it's more of like an oversight function. That's kind of what I was referring to earlier, the whole point of the First Amendment and how courts have, Supreme Court justices have interpreted the First Amendment is that it's incumbent upon the press and the public to hold government accountable. But in order to hold the government accountable, we have to see what the government is doing. Right. Okay. And then I guess... And for my final question is, you know, to put a bow on all of this in terms of these charges against Julian and how they play out if he's actually extradited out to the U.S., what would be, I guess, the optimal outcome for not him, per se, but for like journalism and free speech and the First Amendment as a whole if this were to go to trial? Well, I think there could be a number of different outcomes. I mean, the... Throughout the course of litigation, the prosecution could end up dropping the charges if they don't think they have a strong case or they think they're going to lose. That could happen. Mm -hmm. Or they could be some other issue with the evidence that they think they have that's not as strong as they as they thought it was after the discovery process. There's also the possibility that a court looks at this and says the prosecution of publishing truthful information about a matter of public concern is, you know, violates the First Amendment, mm -hmm. essentially ruling that the Espionage Act, certain provisions of the Espionage Act as applied are unconstitutional. Okay. That's another okay. outcome as well. And there's also been talks about potentially amending the Espionage Act to provide what would be something like a public interest defense, mm. saying that if you were releasing this information in order to further the public interest, it's essentially a defense to the Espionage Act. So legislatively, there's an option there. So there are a number of different possibilities down the road. Wow. Well, hopefully um, Julian will be okay and live through this. His father just came out to say that he's actually doing really bad in jail and getting sick. So you know how the U.S. likes to prosecute people. They probably want to bring him back before next year. Yeah, yeah, no, but know. you know, he has to figure finish out finish his fifty out weeks. First, yeah, and um, in the UK because they ain't playing with him at all. Michael, thank you so much. I think you know this definitely shed some light a little bit on what actually the First Amendment protects and the impact that this case can have on journalists. Yes. Um, so I think it was a really great conversation that we had with you today. Yes. Thank you so much, Michael. I think that really we needed your expertise to guide us through this treacherous history and past of espionage acts and conspiracy to hack and 
all of these other things that sort of have gone down because it's really hard. I, like I said, for the person who doesn't pay attention to the news to understand why it's so important what Julian Assange is about to go through once he gets out of jail. So I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. And do you have any final words? No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, one, one final note is, you know, in the Trump administration, there's been a lot of concern about his rhetoric about him calling the media fake news right. and yeah. loosening up libel laws. And that's that's a lot of talk. I mean, hopefully, if another administration comes one day, all that's going to go away. Right. Yeah. But what may not go away is the blueprint that this case is setting for future administrations, that they could potentially use this as an avenue to punish other um, other publishers or speech that it disagrees with. Right. So that the implications of this could 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 last for a while. So I'll leave you with that. Um, I guess maybe somewhat depressing note. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been it's been a treat. And what's your contact information in case people want to get a hold of you? You all can find me on Twitter at M underscore Lambert 4612. All right. And as for us, you can make sure you visit us at www.poplawpodcast.com at poplawpodcast across all social handles and listen to us everywhere everywhere including apple google spotify stitcher tune in overcast iHeartRadio, literally everywhere everywhere and with that said please remember we, we are, are not, not your, your attorneys, attorneys.